So we continue with Paul's explanation of how uh, uh, Abraham was redeemed and saved by God. And uh, he points out that it was by a promise that God made to him that he would be the heir of the world. That is, that in him all families of the earth would be blessed. Have you um, given thought to the fact that when God said, in you all families of the earth will be blessed, he was meaning the whole world? Because Paul says in chapter 4, verse uh, 13, um, for the promise that he would be heir of the world was to Abraham and to his seed. God said that in your seed, and that is referring to the seed of Jesus Christ, the Messiah who was to come, all the world would be redeemed. Now, Paul says that the promise uh, was not given uh, to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith, that is, through trusting God. Now, why does Paul make such an important point of this? Is it just because he's being theologically correct and exact? Well, you might say, no, he's, he wants to make sure that we, uh, uh, we uh, trust by faith uh, instead of uh, trust in our obedience and our performance by the law. But there's more to it than that. Paul is trying to get at the heart of God. He wants us to be he wants us to know and to be clear that God's heart is so generous, so loving, so merciful that he wants to bless the world by promising the world an inheritance that is eternal. What a wonderful thing you see the whole message of the gospel is the message of getting to the heart of God. What is God like? Is he an exacting landlord? Is he very uh, strict and rigorous, so much so that if you do not toe the line exactly, you will be thrown into hell? Is he um, one that um, is uh, tithing mint and cumin or demanding the tithing of mint and cumin and anise and doesn't care about the weightier matters of the law, which are love and mercy and goodness. No, this is our God who is generous to the to a fault, as it were. He is the one who feeds the 5,000, and then from those meager uh, five loaves and two fishes, there are 12 basketfuls of leftovers. That's God. He's generous. He is generous to the extent that his um, uh, his salvation is called, um, I'm just trying to think of the word that, I, that isn't coming to my mind right now, but a very, very affluent kind of God who gives and gives. So what we have here then is that we are being urged to understand that the promise of God comes by trusting him who is the promise keeper. And he says, for if those who are of the law are heirs, that is, if those who are simply trusting in their behavior and their performance and their credentials and their rituals to be saved and to be accepted by God, they are under a terrible burden of the law. And it, is, it makes the promise empty. This is what Paul says exactly, verse 14. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void, and the promise made of no effect. So we have to understand that the law and the promise are opposites. The promise is not a way to be, well, let's put it another way, the other way. The law is not a means by which to receive the promise. 
And the promise is not a means by which to obey the law so that we can be saved. The promise and the law are opposites. The promise is from God downwards. The law is from man upwards. The promise is from God's love and mercy to us who are unworthy. And the law is our human attempt by our rituals and by our uh, behaviors and our obedience uh, to... uh, to conform to God in such a way that he will accept us. And so the two are opposites. Now, why are they opposites? Well, verse 15, because the law brings about wrath. Now, what does that mean? After all, the law was given by God, and it was the Ten Commandments, as you know, But we must remember, as Paul points out in chapter 2, that the law is more than what is written on two tables of stone. We've said this many, many times. We've talked about this often, that the law is written within our hearts, and it either accuses us or excuses us. And so the law may be, in some cases, equated with conscience. Uh, Our conscience condemns us, or our conscience declares us innocent. But the trouble is, we are sinners, and that means that whenever we have our quiet moments and we are contemplating our lives in relation to God, well, what will the law do in our minds? It will condemn us. It will tell us that we haven't measured up, that we're not quite there yet. We haven't found the perfect way. We are not uh, uh, good enough for the Lord. Now, this may not be a serious issue to you uh, because either you haven't come in contact lately with your conscience or you haven't been in a church that is legalistic. Uh, For a long, long time, many decades, I was in a church that believed that the saved people would be perfect, uh, uh, perfectly obedient to the law. They would do this by the Holy Spirit, but nevertheless, uh, they would be, uh, by the means of the Holy Spirit, perfected, and that is what would save them. Well, nobody was happy in that church, really. When they took that doctrine seriously, they all wondered whether they would make it, whether they'd be good enough yet, whether we would uh, uh, find that perfect life that would conform to the law uh, so that we could be saved. In our quiet moments, in our honest hearts, when we were alone with ourselves, we all knew that we just didn't have what it took. We didn't cut the mustard. We were not good enough to uh, be saved by uh, the conformity to the law. Well, that was a confusion. But it wouldn't be a confusion if we knew the gospel and if that church that I belonged to truly understood the gospel. For the law is not meant to bring salvation. It is not meant to bring righteousness. It is meant to bring conviction of sin and awareness of our brokenness so that we go by faith to the promise in Jesus Christ. Do you see that? You say, well, I know that doctrinally. Yes, you may, but the fact is you may not know it psychologically and spiritually because you may be getting assurance from your conscience all the time. And you say, well, I try to, but my conscience unfortunately keeps condemning me. Well, that's right. That's what the conscience does. 
But have I reminded you lately of, uh, of a, an incredibly interesting verse in 1 John chapter 3, verses 19 and 20? And it says this, And by this we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before God. Now, when it uses the word hearts there, it's speaking symbolically of the conscience, of course. Uh, let's read that again. And by this we shall know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our conscience before God. For if our heart or conscience condemns us, God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Wow, that's very, very interesting, isn't it? So our conscience can tell us that we're wrong and we are lost and we'll never make it. But God, who knows the truth of the gospel that he has given to us in Jesus Christ, is greater than our conscience. He knows all. So there's a higher appeal, you see, uh, to God than our conscience. There is a higher, higher appeal of assurance, and it is the mercy and the love of God. So when your conscience condemns us, or when your conscience condemns you, you are to say, Father, I thank you in Jesus Christ that there is something greater than my conscience, and that is the atoning work of Jesus who has died for my sins. And I will not allow my conscience to separate me from you, to condemn me, to say you're not good enough to be in the presence of God. Do you see how this works? It is so incredibly beautiful and interesting. The gospel, when properly understood, is a true psychology. I am not telling you that the gospel is psychology. I'm telling you that the gospel is true to psychology, true to the laws of the mind, to the heart. We cannot find an assurance from God in our conscience. But we can look to God and say, oh, dear God, even though I'm a sinner and unworthy and, un and broken and have sinned against you, I praise you that you have mercy upon me through your son, Jesus Christ, so that I, I can know that I am safe with you in him. So this is what Paul is getting at when he's trying to help us to understand how Abraham was saved. He was saved by a promise, by the mercy of God. And so this is what Paul means when he says the law brings about wrath. You may not be in a church that believes that salvation is by the law, even though it is by uh, performed that law by the Holy Spirit in you, but you may secretly in your conscience believe that the law is what gives you assurance. Well, let me tell you, it never will. And if you think it does, then my goodness, you have never truly looked into the law. For the law is spiritual. Paul is going to make that clear. Some people say, oh, well, we don't uh, um, uh, believe in salvation by law because the law is carnal, but we're spiritual. Well, they've got it upside down. The truth is, that the law is spiritual and we are carnal. And the reason we don't believe in salvation by the law is that the law is so spiritual we can never reach it. Jesus himself said, Thou shalt not, you've heard it said, you shall not kill, but whosoever hates his brother or says you're a fool to his brother is in danger of the fires of, of Gehenna. What a statement that is! It indicates how really spiritual the law is, and if we are to trust in the law, we have lost the heart of God. The heart of God has to be merciful to us, otherwise we have no hope. So, the law brings wrath, 
But look at what it says in the next line. For where there is no law, there is no transgression. And Paul does not mean that by that that the law doesn't exist. He means that it doesn't apply to our hearts or consciences anymore because, as he's going to say in chapter 7, we have become dead to the law by the body of Christ. In other words, Christ's death was a representational death of our death. He died as an execution for uh, crime and sin on our behalf as our substitute. And that's why there is no law to speak against us. There is a law right there to declare uh, that we are sinners, but we will not be condemned by that law because Christ has atoned for us and his death means that we are already treated as if we had been executed. Well, this is the gospel, do you see? And where does Paul find this? Well, as I've said several times now in the last few days, he finds it in the Old Testament. We must not make the mistake of thinking that the Old Testament is law and the New Testament is grace. No, God works with men and women to save them, by grace all through, from Genesis to Revelation. The people who are saved are the people who have trusted in this wonderful, generous heart of God, who is moving around in this world, maneuvering through Satan's activities to bring grace out of it, so that you, in spite of and in the midst of our struggles with sin, can know God's heart of mercy. Hello, this is Colin Cook, and thanks for listening today to my broadcast, How It Happens. You can hear this broadcast on the radio, 10 o'clock in the evening, repeated at 4 in the morning on KLTT AM 670 in the Denver and Colorado and surrounding states areas. But you can also hear it on uh, your smartphone. Simply download a free app, soundcloud.com or podbean.com, and key in How It Happens with Colin Cook when you get there. And at the beginning of this month, may I ask... Ask you to consider a donation. This broadcast comes to you by radio donations, listener donations. Send your donation to FaithQuest, P.O. Box 366, Littleton, Colorado 80160, or online at faithquestradio.com. Thanks so much. I'll see you next time. Cheerio and God bless.